Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy combined with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. Hello there. How are you all doing? Are you having a good week? Welcome to the What Bitcoin podcast, which is brought to you by Gemini, the only place I'm using for buying Bitcoin. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today I've got an absolute banger of a show. I've got Brandon Quitten back on the show, and we're going to be discussing an article he has written Bitcoin is a pioneer species. Now, Brandon hasn't been on the show for a while, but he has been on a couple of times before. We were discussing Bitcoin in the fourth turning, shows that you guys absolutely loved, smashed the downloads. And you know what? Brandon's just one of my favorite people to talk to. I love getting him on the show. He's always got an interesting perspective, and he's got this knack of being able to read things really quickly. Sometimes when I'm interviewing him, I'll come out with an idea and instantly he will destroy it if he thinks it's got no value. But I love talking to Brandon. I love hanging out with him. So we were in LA. He'd written this article and Danny sent it over to me. And Danny was like, Pete, check this out. And I knew I had to get him back on the show. It's a fascinating topic. And we have linked it in the show notes. Please do go and check it out. Don't just listen to the episode. Go and actually read this because it's a super piece of writing by Brandon. All right. If you've got any questions about this, anything else, please reach out to me. My email address is hello at whatbitcoindid.com. And I will get back to you. I do try and reply to everyone. Even when I'm super busy, I'll get up in the morning and I'll find a way to get through the email. So do reach out if you've got any questions about this or anything else. Okay, have a great weekend where England will smash France and I'll see you all next week. Well done on it. I mean, it was it was such a such a great event. I loved it. It's um it didn't feel like a conference. Um it was very chill. You didn't have to walk very far. And uh, just a lot of people I really like there. You know, when you went to like the bar afterwards, it was just, it was all the people I want to hang out with. Yeah, totally. obviously not everyone. There's other, I'd love other people that, to be there, but it, you guys did a really good job in six months. <laughs> Appreciate that. To be honest, and I've told this to Corey, he told us six months ago, we're doing a big conference. We're going in LA, we have a basketball court outside. And I'm like, this is a horrible idea. We should not do a conference. <laughs> Look at the roadmap at Swan. We're launching all these products. We don't have space for this. And yeah, halfway through the conference, things were going well and people kept coming up to me unprovoked, telling me it was their favorite conference. I was like, all right, Corey's right again. His instincts are supreme. It reminded me of Bitcoin 2019. Same. A lot. Yeah, a lot, which I thought was great. I mean, Bitcoin 2022 was amazing, but it's... And, and it's amazing because it was so big. They managed to do on such a big scale and you know, introduce Bitcoin to so many different people. But it, but I also did miss the 2019 vibe, yeah. Which was just, it was a like it was just like a party with all your friends, totally. Um, and you get to spend time with people and have you know, catch up. And no, I loved it. I think you guys nailed it. And uh, I look forward to next year. Yeah, and quick shout out to Bitcoin Magazine because they blazed this trail. They built the army of you know, event producers and they do a good job and there's room for both, right? They're going to have the enormous cultural event in Miami or wherever. They're going to draw in all the, the tangential communities. Um, and we need that for Bitcoin, right? It will water down the culture a little bit. Some people will get upset, but very, very important. And then we can go a little more boutique, a little bit more our vibe and yeah, both make sense. Yeah, no, loved it. Um, can't wait for next year. Uh, a, lot of, a lot of really good moments in it as well. Um, yeah, it's great for us to be able to promote the football club, which is, you know, really appreciate that. Uh, we sold a lot of merch. <laughs> you know, we sold about $6,000 of merch. Amazing. Which is great because all that goes towards, you know, supporting the club and the team. And also, obviously, we recruit a bunch more 
Bedford soldiers. That's right. Bedford pinning these people. Um, yeah, I loved it. I, I, I could not think of one thing I didn't like about it. I'm not just saying that because you're here. I just, there was nothing to complain about. And also, I, I go to a lot of conferences. You do. For a first conference, it was it ran. It, it was really smooth how it ran. Um, and a lot of that comes down to who you have as the event coordinators and who you, you found a good company. Yeah, shout out JJLA. They right. are pros. Yeah, not always easy to work with, but on Showtime, yeah, they nailed it. Why, because they're demanding? Yeah, they're just really professional and they don't normally take first event clients because why take a risk with a bunch of no names? But Corey's got a guy for everyone, of course. And <laughs> here we are working with the premier company in LA. Yeah. Um, you spoke about, you mentioned that there was a lot of funny moments. Can I share one? Please do. It's a little bit embarrassing to the person I'm about to mention. However, okay. it was recorded, so it's going to be on YouTube anyways. Um, day two, I was working in the morning. This, If you didn't notice, the Swans had our day jobs, the conference, the corporate retreat. We were stretched. And so I'm showing up like 30 minutes before my panel. I'm like, good, I need to check five minutes in the Swan Dome. I walk in, it's Bitcoin or speed dating, right? Totally unrelated to Bitcoin. We just picked some crowd favorites, Lynn Alden, Alan Farrington, Preston, Greg Foss, just, you know, just the jolly folks, right? Camilla's up there, all cute and pregnant and her little voice going, Okay, first question. When was the last time you peed yourself? And the whole panel is looking around like, there's no way I'm answering that question. Greg Foss goes, I can't tell a lie. He snatches the mic and just goes full on. He goes, last time I was on Preston's podcast. As you guys know, Preston runs a pretty long podcast and I had to go to the bathroom. But I was too embarrassed to tell anyone. So I sat there and I I peed myself in the wrist chair. <laughs> the whole house is going nuts. And he goes, good thing I had some plastic underneath my chair because it caught all of it. We've we, got, we, he's coming in later. We should definitely put so like a bin bag down under or something. <laughs> just have a garbage yeah. bag under his chair. You've got to sit there, Greg. Should we get a diaper? <laughs> oh, God. We don't call them diapers, by the way. What do you call them? We call them nappies. Man, British people. Yeah. Well, it was our it was our language first. You you you're really just a descendant of us. It's true. I don't like to hear that, but it's true. And by the way, you spelled my name wrong. Whoops. I'm a Mac. I'm a McCall Mac. Oh, I gave you a Mick. You gave me a Mick. That's what the uh, BSV crowd call me. They call they me forked Mac you. They they forked me to McCormick. For the uh, the Max of the Irish, the mix of the Scottish. Oh, I learned something today. Yeah, this was originally going to be just my notes, and then I was like, you know what, I should be a you know good host and send it over. Dude, you did you did Danny's work for him. It's perfect. Yeah, it's brilliant. All right, man, we got a big topic to get into today. You've written another epic article. Indeed. Uh, I've read it, skimmed some of it. It's a long, long one. Yeah. How it's many long. words was it? Six thousand, nine thousand. You got a book in you, right? Definitely. Is it going to be a collection of articles or are you actually, I've got to, have I asked something that you're actually working on? It's been in the works for a while, but I'm not intent. There's no deadline. I'm not actually day-to-day -day focused on it. It's just, I know I want to compile all the biological explorations of Bitcoin in one book. And my ceiling of money was 20,000 words. And I have a bunch more that are half drafts, half written stuff. It's really just finding time. And when I look at my life on like a five, 10 year time frame, I think it's time to go all in on Swan, ride this thing till we take it public or have an exit of some sort. And we can sort of, you know, take a deep breath and then go back to family mode and produce a book at that point. By the way, 
Well, before I ask this, because I don't want to dox you, is, is where you live public? Yeah, Minneapolis. Okay. We have a Rail Bedford Supporters Club in Minneapolis who are fucking crazy. They, they love are. it. Yeah, shout out Edgar. He's the boss. He comes yeah. to the meetup I run every month. And yeah, he siphons our meetup folks to watch football. And he's got non-Bitcoiners who are just football nerds who love the story coming. And then he orange pills them, right? It's a nice little symbiosis. Have you been to one of the games? I haven't. Dude, well, we're going to come. We've decided. Oh, okay. Yeah. We're going to come. We're going to pick a game. We're going to come over and we're going to watch the game with the Minneapolis crowd. Great idea. So you have to come. Yeah, no, I will. We should do it at the distillery. Um, we meet up every month at this amazing distillery, O'Shaughnessy's in Minneapolis. Like, we do not deserve this. I've been running the meetup since 2019. During COVID, I would drop GPS coordinates and we would meet in a park. We would meet in old office buildings just to keep it going. And then I met the owner of this distillery, also hardcore Bitcoiner. He's like, have it at our place. So he gives us a, a private room in this, you know, like 10,000 square foot uh, destination distillery. It's beautiful. Um, so we should host it there. Does he give you a drink? He, he's very generous. We buy most of our drinks, but he always tosses out all this food and whiskey to sample. But hold on a second. So what's the time difference uh, Minneapolis to New York? It's one hour before. So it's six hour UK time difference. So, so three like o'clock kickoff. Eight in the morning or something. Eight, eight, Nine in the morning. So yep. we, we would have to start at nine in the morning. That's Unless okay. we get a Tuesday game. We're just doing no interviews that day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, man, listen, uh, tell everyone about this article you've been working on and then we'll yeah, yeah. get into it. So this one is Bitcoin is a pioneer species, right? I like these biological analogies because enough people talk about finance and economics. So I want to sort of sneak in with some storytelling, some analogies. And this one's all about energy. Um, it's about incentives. It's about ecology. It's about uh, complex systems in our world. And I really want to tell the story of Bitcoin being good for the environment and how humans are directly related to energy. And most people think about Bitcoin as a monetary system, which it obviously is first and foremost, a universal, universal property rights system for the whole planet. Um, but it's also an incentive for humans to master energy, right? There's now a price for energy anywhere in the hash horizon. So anywhere between you know, Earth and like halfway to Mars, you can harness energy there. There's a 24-7 buyer of that energy, right? Small little incentive. However, you look at humans, humans are driven by incentives. Now that leads to all this crazy stuff around the world. Like a, a guy in Mexico is taking pig shit and converting it into energy to mine Bitcoin. Um, in Guatemala, they're taking used cooking oil, which is typically dumped in Lake Atilan, like a I've beautiful lake. Yeah, they yeah. pollute the lake with the cooking oil. And some guys huh. retrofitted some engines to uh, digest that cooking oil, create energy, and mine Bitcoin. Have so you been there? I haven't. My wife has. So I went with uh, Jose from Ibex and Carlinho. Mm -hmm. uh, I was in uh, uh, El Zonte, and these two guys turned up, and they said, hey, we're from Guatemala. Do you want to come and see our Bitcoin project? And I went, yeah, and I got in a car with them. And then when I was driving away, I was thinking, hold on a second. I don't know these guys for shit. <laughs> and they drove me across the border. But, uh, but you no, still have your kidneys? Still have, well, you know, I haven't checked. Yeah, no, I've still got my <laughs> kidneys. But I went to Lake Adelan, it's beautiful. But what's happening to that? That lake is dying. Is it? Yeah, oh, because man. basically it's in a valley. It's, mm -hmm. it's so, get a, have you seen it? No, have you seen I've it? seen pictures. Yeah. Uh, How do I spell it? Uh, A T A L A N. You'll find it. Yeah, Google. Super Google, popular. Google, Google will know that. So it's basically, it's in a valley. It's in, and um, yeah, people live all around the lake, obviously, because people, you know, villages build around water. That's it. 
It's so beautiful. Stunning. And you travel, you get these little boats across the lake to go to the different parts. Mm -hmm. Um, But obviously everyone dumps all their shit and piss into it and rubbish. And so the lake itself is dying. And there's a lot of political issues we're trying to solve those problems. Um, But there is a Bitcoin community there. I went to a Bitcoin meetup. So I had to go across the lake and it was... I don't know how to describe it. It was... um, it was like just this, almost almost like a community of Westerners. There's a hairdresser there, and there's yep, a farmer, yep. and you know they have a Bitcoin meetup, and it was incredible. It was, it was a great experience. Um, but yeah, sorry, I interrupt you. No, no, that's good. Um, yeah, that, I'm just kind of gushing about humans and energy, and I think it's widely misunderstood. And it's okay if we don't understand things, right? If journalists and politicians don't understand things, that's fine generally. However, with energy, the consequences are real. Yes. And you look around the world right now and we're starting to pay the price. Um, Well, when we uh, looked at your notes earlier, there was one line that particularly stood out. When we get this wrong, people die. Exactly. You know, that's- It's deadly serious. Yeah. Yeah. Go on. What what is energy, right? It's the way that humans- interact with the world and the way that humans protect themselves from the environment. We're essentially engineering a world that's more suitable for humans uh, compared to the harsh realities of our planet, right? Um, Heating and cooling we take for granted. How about a hospital, right? If you're in Africa and you don't have steady baseload power, you can't have a incubator. If you have a premature baby, they're not going to make it because they can't afford the energy. And you know, I just had a kid recently, that one hits home with me. And there's endless, endless examples like that. Well, I'll tell you why the timing of this is really good. Um, when you go down the Bitcoin rabbit hole, you essentially rethink money. You you have to re-understand what money is, what its purpose is, how it works. Because up until the point I discovered Bitcoin, I would, I'd never thought about it. You know, money was just something which went into my bank account at the end of the month, paid my mortgage and my bills, and then I would occasionally tap a card or spend some cash and buy stuff. And I would be considering, should I save some? And you know, maybe if I was buying a house, what my mortgage rate was, but I never thought about money itself. You know, never thought about inflation, never thought about any of those things. And you go on a kind of journey of discovery of rethinking what money is and what makes good money and why good money is important. And then you know, you get to why 0% interest rates warp money and warp incentives. You go through all of this, and I'm still way early in my kind of journey of learning about money. I feel like the same thing's happening with energy. And the reason I say that is, if you go back five, six years, pre-Bitcoin, thinking about the environment, thinking about global warming and climate issues, I was very much on... in even though I'm a hypocrite because I fly a lot, I'm very much in the camp of highly concerned about the environment, thinking we need to you know, get off fossil fuels as quickly as possible. Never thought about the consequences. Because of Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin's role with mining and energy and energy consumption, essentially going down an energy rabbit hole now and learning about energy, what it means, what its role is, you know, how we produce it, how we are efficient with energy. And it's a whole new rabbit hole. Yeah, I feel the exact same way. And to be honest, mining was the last part of Bitcoin I sunk my teeth into. I initially thought it was kind of boring or just like a service provider, not for me. And now I find it to be the most fascinating part about Bitcoin today. And I think it's partially because it's colliding with real world consequences, right? You look at Germany, okay, they get all their energy from Russia. Most of Europe does. That's not a good position to be in. 
And what did the, the Greens do in Germany? They decommissioned nuclear plants. They decommissioned natural gas. Um, they went all in on solar, things like that. And now what are they doing? Well, since they're not buying natural gas from- Coal plants. Um, yeah, they're turning coal plants on. They're burning biomass. Uh, I, I'm gonna get the details wrong, but there's a supply chain where in the US they clear cut forests. They take those trees, ship them to a factory, turn them into wood pellets, put them on another truck, bring them to a boat, drive a boat across the Atlantic to Europe, take those pellets, put them on a truck with diesel, drive them to a power plant and literally burn those compressed wood pellets for energy. And guess what? It's ESG, thumbs up, gold star all around. Even though it's the literal most polluting form of energy we have on our planet today. And you know what my favorite energy analyst, Doomberg says, in the fight between platitudes and physics, physics always wins. Meaning we can talk a big game as a politician, but when push comes to shove, we need energy. And we're starting to realize it's really nice to talk about solar panels, but not at the expense of humans. And I think that's the context we need here is, is it about humans? Do we care about humans? Or do we care about this ambiguous future where we transition off fossil fuels? And I'm supportive of that long-term vision, but not at the expense of humans today. Yeah. So firstly, Doomberg, incredible. Uh, I recently subscribed to his Substack. Um, I think the first article I read was about the transporting of liquid natural gas across the Atlantic as well. Um, and that that was a real eye-opener to somebody who actually isn't virtue signaling. They're just looking at the data and, and educating you on that. So anyone listening, definitely go and check out his Substack. It is gen genuinely brilliant. Uh, and then in terms of the climate, it is still something I think about a lot. M my position has changed a lot since uh, talking to people like Epstein, who, who I disagree with on a lot of issues, Same. but he's he's woken me up to the idea that, hold on, we, have, we, ha we need energy. We, we have to be cognizant of the implications of uh, a rapidly changing price in energy or energy not being available. And we've seen that in the UK. We've witnessed it where uh, we've had a massive increase in energy prices and people cannot afford to heat their homes or run their businesses. And the government has having to print more money to support them. So I'm cognizant of that. I think the blind spot that me and Danny were discussing earlier, we had um, Nate Harmon in yesterday and Steve Barber. I don't want to call it a debate. It became a bit of a debate, but I'd rather call it a discussion. My biggest blind spot, or what I don't know the answer to, and I want the answer for is, the earth is warming, that is for certain. All the data is there that it's warming, and it's warming because of the actions of humans. What I don't know is, and I haven't seen the best data on is, what are the implications of that, and what is the net impact of that? That's my biggest blind spot, because yeah, if, 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 if we're gonna do net more damage, trying to come off fossil fuels too quickly, then that's not the right move. And I don't feel like enough work's done in there. So that's, there, that's my blind spot. That's, that's all I care about in understanding now is what do increase in temperatures mean? And also at a local level, what does that mean for people in you know, developed Western nations? What does that mean for people, coastal regions in South America? What does that mean for people in Indonesia? What does that mean for farmers in Africa? I, I wanna know all of that. Yeah, I agree. It's it's very complex. And I think the mainstream talking points on climate don't seem to actually be coming uh, from science. They don't seem to be coming from people who have our best interests in mind. It feels to me that I'm going to call it big climate. It feels hijacked by central power structures 
And they seem to be just collecting people on their narrative to push things that may or may not be good for that goal, right? ESG is coming out of BlackRock. That's a Larry Fink uh, idea. And from that perspective, he doesn't care about the environment. He, he stands to gain tremendously from implementing these things because he writes the rules and he determines the capital allocation for a tremendous portion of the world. And so my realization in the last five years, and I'm very pro-environment naturally, I'm an outdoorsman, I absolutely love the outdoors, but I don't like seeing um, these like, it's like a corporate shell game on top of something that matters. And so it is really hard to figure out what's true or not. Um, and I also see a lot of people caught up in this Malthusian uh, fear spell. And Thomas Malthus was an economist um, several hundred years ago who looked at nature. And what he found is that organisms, let's take deer, um, they expand to the maximum carrying capacity of their environment. And then they eat all the food and the population plummets. And Malthus is charting um, US, or I'm sorry, not US, a human population. Well, look, it's growing exponential. Eventually we'll hit our peak carrying capacity. The environment won't sustain us and population will crash. And that was his idea. Keynes was influenced by this. Um, many, uh, Bill Gates, many, many, many of the leaders today are influenced by this thought. Um, however, Malthus is wrong because humans are not like deer. Humans use technology. We make tools. Uh, we learned how to farm more production in less space, right? We invented fertilizers, GMO crops, et cetera. And so we went from 50% of people growing food to you know, 0.5% people growing food through technology. And so I don't think the answer is um, we're gonna destroy the planet. I think the answer is we're gonna change the planet and it's up to us to try to adapt. And I think that's the real concern. Um, Earth is fine. If you look throughout history, it's been way warmer, it's been way colder and the ecosystems adapt. Now, organisms die off, humans have to adapt, and the, the least capable among us are the most vulnerable. They can't shelter themselves, right? Developing countries have very high energy costs. And if you have high energy costs, high manufacturing costs, which means you don't have many goods, your building materials are bad, and you're very dependent on foreign investment. Yeah, that was the one area I got a bit stuck yesterday with Steve Barber. So I tried to play it down the middle between the two of them. But the one area I got stuck with him is that what do we do and do we do anything about the fact that I, as somebody who lives in the UK, middle class, you, somebody who lives out in the US, both live in essentially wealthy nations, we're going to find it easier to adapt to, for example, changing temperatures, the effects on crops and... Uh, the kind of change of water levels, we can adapt easier. We've got more capital to expend on innovation and technology. What do we do about the countries, the poorer countries, who don't have the same resources? It is a single climate. We're all going to be affected the same. Well, we're all affected by it. What do we do about that? I don't believe there will be a voluntary solution to that problem. Can I change your mind on that? Yeah, please do. Always so try and do I that. agree with that. Uh, generally speaking, if you look at uh, Central Africa, for example, it's essentially a rapidly changing environment where they're just not getting rain anymore. If you don't have rain, you don't have crops, you can't support people. So Africans are migrating north to get out of this uh, essentially desertification zone. And there's no incentive for people with money to fix that, is there? No. Um, now we have, you know, I can't solve this problem completely, but 
why I wrote this essay was I was inspired by a case study in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Mm-hmm. And what they have going on there is a national park called Virunga. It's a huge economic zone for the region. You know, people fly in and they go see the gorillas and they do stuff like that. However, all the people that live nearby are extremely poor and they want to heat their home, they want to cook food. So they're clear cutting the forest in this nature reserve in order to heat their home and feed their kids. I don't blame them, right? Bad for the environment, but you got to feed your kids. Um, They're also in these tiny little houses where there's so much smoke from the cooking that the kids develop horrible respiratory diseases, right? Because they're poor. Now, what happened that, you know, got me excited about this essay is some Bitcoin miners came in there and it's a very mountainous region. So lots of untapped rivers that can be turned into hydropower and a public-private partnership with Virunga and a French mining company. I forgot the name, sorry. Um, great dude. They came in, dropped shipping containers and built these little hydro dams. And now what they're doing is they're shipping energy to all the people that live nearby. So they don't have to burn trees to cook. They can actually use electricity. And it's also creating jobs for the local environment. It's preventing crime. It's saving children's lives. It's stopping environmental degradation, right? It's it's the biggest narrative violation with Bitcoin mine. It's spreading human prosperity from the ground up and it does not require a subsidy from the government. It requires a free market incentive from a tiny little shift, which is that energy can be sold to the Bitcoin network no matter where you are. I want to go there. I want to go there. Is there a case study on this? Like a written up case study of the impact? Not an academic version that I'm aware of. Gladstein's touched on this. Many people have written about it. Because I'd love to know the actual stats, like how many jobs have been created? Like what's the actual impact? But really we should just, we should fucking go. Mm-hmm. We've not been to Africa yet. Yeah, and what I would say is we probably shouldn't get over ahead of our skis on these because I view these as more like case studies or beta projects for the, the vision I have. Um, but that was the first one that caught my attention. Well, so on the mining thing, yeah, we've we've seen. Well, this is an example project. We have the examples of grid stability, yep. which people regularly talk about. ERCOT. We have um, what's the name of the guy doing the um, the dumps? Uh, Adam from Vespian. Yes, Vespian. Who are going to? Yeah, do you know him? Great guy. So they're obviously going to landfill sites and um, you know, flaring off the. I think it's the methane. Correct. And there's all these great ideas. The Bitcoin network isn't big enough to support all of these projects. You know, the economics aren't there. I'd, obviously, we want Bitcoin to go to a million dollars so we can have more of these projects. But I'm reticent to think mining can solve everything. So whilst that's great, we're talking about hundreds of millions of people in Africa. I don't know how many people will be affected by climate change. How do we... How do we solve their problems if Bitcoin mining doesn't scale to solve it sooner? Yeah, yeah. And to be clear, I'm not saying Bitcoin mining is going to solve yeah. climate change. I'm saying it is a free market incentive that helps people help themselves in a way that spreads energy around the world. Let's talk about energy for a, yeah. for a second, because the moral okay. case for energy is really, really important. And we want more energy, cheaper and more widely distributed. Yes. In developed countries in the US, we have low cost energy a steady grid, but that is not the norm, right? And if you look at countries around the world, GDP is highly correlated to energy production. And so, you know, it's a symbiotic thing, right? You can't build things if you don't have cheap energy. 
And if you don't have cheap energy, then you're sort of hamstringed in your country. You rely on uh, World Bank, for example, to invest in you, which they do some predatory lending. And so you just have all these countries stuck in the, the literal dark ages. Can I uh, interject there? Danny knows what I'm going to talk about. Um, we just did an interview with Alex Gladstein mm-hmm. discussing the World Bank and the IMF. And essentially, it's a story of economic colonialism. Correct. So you know, post-territorial and uh, war machine colonialism, um, they've essentially inflicted economic colonialism across the developing world by giving them loans and usually with dictators because the dictator would love a $200 million loans because they can steal some. And in return, they, uh, what was that term? The um, structural adjustment. Structural adjustment. And so therefore, the, here's your loan, but you now have to change your farming practices because you know, if you farm, the example he gave was Bangladesh. If you farm shrimp, shrimp's valuable around the world. You can export that. But they're no longer grown uh, crops for the local population. Things become more expensive. They have a trade, uh, a difference in their trade balances. And so essentially, we've just enslaved the rest of the world with debt to enable us as you know, Western nations to live these you know, great lives in these nice houses with iPhones and iPads and you know, we've we've it's it's a it's a different kind of slavery. It's a debt slavery that we've uh, put on the rest of the world. Like I feel terrible about it. Correct. And you know, then you look at it and you go, oh yeah, well, Shell have pretty much siphoned off the majority of the oil out of the Niger- out of Nigeria. Or, you know, and we've seen we've seen that mm-hmm. we're taking their energy and they don't have access to it. Hundred percent. And this is where the magic of incentives come in. Um, people often call Bitcoin the buyer of last resort, energy buyer of last resort, meaning you produce some energy, you sell it to customers, and there's a little extra. There's nothing to do with it. So Bitcoin miners co-locate and they buy the extra. Great. This article is all about Bitcoin Bitcoin energy buyers of first resort, meaning, okay, we're about to produce a net new energy asset, and it might take five years for the population to grow big enough to purchase that energy, might take years to ship the energy, building high voltage transmission to bring it to the population center, et cetera. And in that short term, a lot of a lot of energy projects never get funded because there's that really long period of ROI. This is especially important in these developing countries who rely on the World Bank and IMF because no one wants to invest in those countries because it's so risky. Okay, now Bitcoin miners are actually stepping in as a type of capital formation, which says, Okay, we're gonna put a uh, we're gonna we're gonna harness some geothermal in Kenya. It's like six feet under the ground. They have hot energy coming up. They can just spread out and collect this energy and power the majority of the country. But huge capital expenditure. Okay, what if Bitcoin miners are on site from day one buying all that energy? Now all of a sudden the investment case looks a lot better. And so this this essay is essentially arguing that Bitcoin miners are going to lead to a net new production of energy assets. This is what Harry Suddock talks about. Mm-hmm. Harry Suddock we had on talked about this, and yeah, his example was more domestic. He was saying, yeah, you might need a hospital or a school near a town, but there isn't the justification to build out the energy infrastructure for that. Now with Bitcoin mining, you can do that. Exactly. Yeah, great. There's less risk in that investment. Um, you can charge less energy for the customers because you have this captive buyer who's willing to take it all at a good price. And that's the whole point of the essay is that little incentive, energy now has a buyer, leads to more complex um, 
economic arrangements and human flourishing. It's also what Austin Mitchell was talking about in Africa, saying they can now build out much bigger grids because they can have that buyer of first resort. And then that in turn makes the energy cheaper for everyone in that local vicinity. So exactly. they're actually reducing the energy price in Africa because of Bitcoin mining. And those miners can pack up and leave whenever the end consumer population center builds out, the miners are squeezed out, pack up the machines and go do it again. Um, why don't I explain what a pioneer species is, actually? This is probably a good time. Yeah, I'm going to come back to the bit I want to talk about, okay? Okay. A pioneer species is a unique organism. Um, it's mostly from ecology, which is like a type of biology where you're studying systems. How does energy, you know, photons from the sun hit the earth? Uh, plants are just solar panels catching photons. They could take carbon out of the air and they make complex molecules that, um, you know, plant eaters eat and then carnivores eat the plant eaters. And it's just a recycling of photons from the sun pretty much. And sort of studying how that works out in populations or in, in ecosystems. And so one of the organisms there is the pioneer species. And the famous case study is a volcanic island near Iceland. Okay, big volcano erupts, wipes out all life on an island. You just have an igneous rock floating in the middle of the ocean. Is that just going to be a rock forever or will new life colonize that territory again, right? Enter the pioneer species. So it's a hardy organism, drought tolerant. It can travel on its own and its role is to recolonize that. And so a typical example would be a lichen, which is a symbiosis between a fungus and a plant. Um, they work together. They land on that rock. The fungus digests, literally digests the rock with chemistry, liberates all the molecules needed, and then the plant collects energy from the sun. Those two trade, and over time, you convert a rock into soil. And as you have more soil, you can attract some more hardy plants, and then those plants continue that process, and then you have trees, and then all the animals come back, and then you have a, a peak ecosystem. That process is called succession. Okay, now- That's, in, that's amazing. It is amazing. That first bit, mm -hmm. the creation of the soil. Bingo. That's insane. It is insane. And now let's tie it to Bitcoin. So Bitcoin miners are those pioneer species. So they're looking around for ecosystems with untapped energy assets. Let's do the dams, or the, the rivers in the mountainous region in DRC, right? Untapped energy lives there, but it can't be harnessed now because no one has the capital to invest. Now the miners pair up with the people on site. They go colonize that energy asset. And now all of a sudden you're producing more energy, you sell it to the local community and succession occurs again. Now you have cheap energy. Maybe industry wants to come there and buy that cheap energy. If there's industry, then you need jobs, you need housing, you need roads, you need hospitals. And from that one little incentive, it grows out and it becomes a flourishing human civilization. Then the miners get squeezed out, they go and they go find a new energy asset to bootstrap um, prosperity somewhere else and the cycle repeats. So I view Bitcoin miners as little Citadel seeds. I know you don't like the Citadel meme, but think of it as little no, seeds that plant uh, around the world and they just produce human flourishing. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, recent events have highlighted just how important self-custody is. And Ledger is the smartest and easiest way for you to take control of your Bitcoin. And the world's most popular hardware wallet just got better. Ledger have recently announced the launch of their Nano S Plus. The larger screen makes it easier to manage and verify your Bitcoin transactions. And the Nano S Plus maintains the same high level of security as all other Ledger products. 
Now, I have been a Lizard customer since early 2017, before I even started this podcast, and I absolutely love the S+. Plus. If you want to find out more and purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R dot com. Next up, we have BitCasino. Established in 2013, BitCasino was the first licensed Bitcoin casino, and they are trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide. Not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they also have fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. With over 2,800 games and tournaments to compete against each other and 24-7 live chat support, BitCasino is the best Bitcoin casino that you can go to. Now, if you want to find out more about BitCasino, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award, head over to bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Next up, we have Ledin. Now, from savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of their holdings today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They are also dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they will re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. And not only a Ledin sponsor, I am also a customer of theirs too. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. Also today, we have Fidelity Investments. Now, one of the most regular emails I receive is people asking how to break into the industry. And Fidelity Investments reach out to me as they are looking to recruit hundreds of digitally native associates to their team to help shape the future of money. Now, Fidelity Investments is a diversified financial services provider with more than $7.2 trillion in client assets under administration and over 1.3 million trades each day. And they have also been pioneers in the Bitcoin mining and asset management space. Now, they started in Bitcoin back in 2014 when they entered the mining space and have continued to grow their team of services ever since. And their in-house fintech incubator is where the teams come up with innovative solutions to bridge the worlds of traditional finance and decentralization. Now, you have the chance to join them and directly impact how they deliver financial services to their customers. And they provide the resources, training, and development to make you successful in this emerging industry. Now, if you want to learn more about this, then please head over to crypto.fidelitycareers.com. That is crypto.fidelitycareers.com. Well, so when I first read it, I turned around to Danny. I said, this sounds a little bit more like economic colonialism. We're going in there and we're, we're stealing the energy and we're creating the Bitcoin and we're sending the money back to wherever we come from. But, but now you've explained it. Now I understand it. By the way, how do you come up with this shit? Is this when you're on like mushrooms? Or <laughs> <laughs> Usually not. No, um, I like ideas. Usually, usually, <laughs> yeah. not leave always. It, leave it open ended. <laughs> I have a reputation to uh, massage. The thing that I love is even if it's done with the most selfish intention, the outcome is probably a positive in that sense. Like so, yeah. I, I really like that. Yeah. The the beautiful thing is we don't have to go there and do this. The incentives there for people locally to do it themselves. And that's way better. Like taking pig shit in Mexico, digesting it and binding Bitcoin, that didn't require uh, a Western company to come extract resources, right? That was all done locally. And I think that's where the magic comes. Um, you, don't, you don't need outside capital because the, the economic terms are now a lot better. 
Um, to be fair though, there will be a lot of people coming in to do that. But to Danny's point, doesn't matter. Just like Bukele, he's got a lot of faults, but if he unleashes Bitcoin in his country and it takes off, it doesn't matter what he does because he just accidentally empowered all his people and a dictator is less potent in that type of environment. Everything is good for Bitcoin. Everything is good for Bitcoin. I really like the um, the fact that you've identified this is actually a progressive agenda, which should be. It absolutely is. A real progressive, not a fake progressive. Correct. Yeah, the progressives want to say um, solar panels and wind everywhere you go. And that's cute and that's nice from New York City with your latte. But that does not reflect reality on the ground. Um, people want to eat, they want shelter, they want the basics. And those basics come from low cost forms of energy. And the reality is that that means fossil fuels today. And with the, this uh, sort of pioneer species thing, you, want, you, you can be on this team if you're a progressive, even if you don't agree with fossil fuels because it's spreading energy. And spreading energy is the single best way you can uh, raise people out of poverty. Jordan Peter says, make them rich. That's absolutely true. But energy is the master commodity. If you want to be rich, you need cheap energy because everything is downstream from energy. And so, yeah, the biggest humanitarian issue in the world is make people rich. How to do that? Give them cheap energy. Well, we're making people poor in the UK by giving them expensive energy. We are literally making people poor. We are, as I said, we've got people who cannot heat their homes. We, we hit a point where they, they were discussing five and a half thousand pound a year for your energy bills. Yeah, five and a half thousand pound a year. Insane. And they've had to subsidize that. They've had to put a cap in. I think the cap's two and a half thousand pound. Now, if you if you earn twelve thousand pound a year, that's nearly fifty percent of your I mean, it's it's not possible. So people are not heating their homes. They're cold. They can't feed like that's in the UK. That's in the UK. We're pushing people into poverty. But I mean, a lot of this has helped me identify uh the real world issues of money printing in the UK. One of the things I've recognized is that whilst UK GDP is, you know, over the last two decades is up, the life people are living, the, the separation between the, the wealth gap is leading to real kind of disastrous consequences. We've got um, ghettos. We've got ghettos, you know, being created in towns that used to be towns that flourished. I've got a film. We've got to watch that. We've got, I've got this film coming out about inflation. I went to this place called Harlow, and they had a, it's a building called Terminus House. And they had a problem with um, housing, social housing. So they've turned this old office block into social housing. It's a fucking favela in the middle of the UK. And it's a center of various social issues. You know, you're putting single parents in there, single mothers in there with drug dealers and drug addicts and you know, criminals. And it's, it's, to me, it's what really identified these issues. But we're now squeezing the middle class out in the UK. We've not only we've not only squeezed the poor, we're now squeezing the middle class out. We've got people who are closing their businesses because they went from having a cafe whose energy bill would have been you know, five thousand pound a year to fifty thousand. It's, it's not like how yeah, this is that place. This is this is a UK. I'm favela. pretty sure they photoshopped that sunny sky. <laughs> yeah, I think I think they have. Well, it's not that sunny. I mean, I went there, right? I went there. It's awful. It reminds me of Soviet housing. It yeah, is like that. it is like that. Yeah. And it's because we, we've squeezed people so much in the UK. Um, but yeah, so you've got cafes who've got their energy bills going for 5,000 a year to 50,000. And it's not like, oh, how do we, you know, what can we change? Can we run? No, we just can't run our business. We just close our business down. 
That you can't is print energy. You cannot print energy. And that that has been a real, again, another eye-opener. It's one of the problems of doing this job is like you learn in public. Yeah. You're sitting down with somebody and they're telling you something you're like, holy shit. And then you have to go on away and you've got to process this. How about Germany? It's the manufact it's one of the biggest manufacturing hubs in the world, certainly for Europe. 100, 200, 300 year old companies are going bankrupt because the economic conditions today are too harsh. Yep. Imagine what they survived in 200 years. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like most people around the world are even aware of this at this point. And that's shocking. Um, it's very real and it's not gonna get better anytime soon. Lynn Alden does a good job explaining this, but it mm. takes a long time to get energy assets turned on. It's like 10 to 15 years. Well. Maybe for like a new nuclear facility. It can no, be a lot quicker. Nuclear could be longer. She, 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 I think she told me she thinks we're going to have a, a decade to recover from the lack of investment in energy. I agree with yeah. that. Yeah, but a single energy asset can come online a bit quicker than that. But not at scale, not around the world, doesn't solve the problem anytime soon. Well, but they end up just recommissioning coal plants, right? Yeah. That's what, what we're doing right UK, now. Yeah. yeah, and there's been no new nuclear plants for how long although they've i think they've just commissioned two now in the uk to be built which i don't know how long they'll take there's one that's meant to be finished in i think 27 maybe yeah we deserve it honestly um in alberta canada tons of oil under the ground what do they do disincentivize drilling locally and then they just push all the manuf the, the the energy production and good production industrial stuff over to china and then what do they do they import all the exact same goods China has less stringent regulations and they had to ship things over on a boat to bring it back to the people to buy it. And then they pat themselves on the back and they win awards because they reduced emissions. Or, or complain that uh, China is um, building, what if, is it a thousand now coal plants? So I There's a thousand that are currently operational, just over a thousand. But they're planning to build 50, gonna build 50, 50 yeah, of course, they've got, to, they've got to meet the demand of the production to give us Westerners what we want. The, one of the trickiest things with this, I find, and trying to relay these messages when I get back home, I'm always trying to be very careful how I do it because as soon as you're classed a right-wing conspiracy theorist, you're, you're, you're immediately out of the conversation. You're considered a psycho and a nutter. And I'm always trying to think or trying to find ways to let... I think that's why people think I'm a bit of a cuck because I'm, I, I'm always trying to relay these messages into a way that people can digest them. Yeah, you're good at that. But it, but it's hard. It's a tough job to do. It's trying to say, you know, it's trying to get people to understand that this is not a conspiracy. This is real. These are the real world impacts. Let's take some time to understand it. And it's really hard. It's really hard. Um, I think the my favorite line on this one is um, explaining how hard it is. Is Bitcoin mining is everything you don't understand about energy combined with everything you don't understand about Bitcoin. <laughs> Right. It's it's by far the hardest. And energy itself might be a deeper rabbit hole than Bitcoin. And normal people don't have time to study this stuff. And most people fall in line with the consensus narrative, which is that we need to stop fossil fuels because the planet's about to break. Young people are diagnosed with climate anxiety now. That's a new disorder that young people have. One of the servers at our meetup was telling me about this. And I was like, hold on, explain that to me. It, that might be an American thing. It might be. Yeah. Um, but essentially she said, all my friends are worried about the future and we all are, you know, we're just thinking short term and we think the boomers sold out the future and we're screwed. And that's certainly not true. And it's not a way to live. Um, young people need to be hopeful and optimistic about the future. We need to think long-term and 
when you start to realize that it's not surprising why young people are so nihilistic today, why culture erodes. There's nothing to live for. There's nothing to fight for. And there's where Michael Saylor goes all in on Bitcoin is hope. And I wholeheartedly agree. You see a bunch of people with an optimistic view of the future and they mean it and they get together and they're positive and you can tell and there's a plan and humans instinctively want to be a part of something larger than ourselves. And we can't get around that. And this is a really good thing to attach ourselves to. And I think everyone here agrees it provides great meaning and purpose. And I think it's morally right and good. We need more kids like my daughter. She's so fucking, she's 12. She's so based, honestly, like more than me, way more than me. Like if she was here. That doesn't sound too hard. <laughs> <laughs> fuck this guy. Give my, give my hoodie back. Um, if you if you didn't if you didn't know that she was my daughter, you'd probably think she's Matt Odell's daughter. She just <laughs> literally doesn't give a fuck. She's she's so based. Um, I think a lot of these issues are, are bigger issues in the U.S. and I think they are a uh, a result of uh, two party politics. I agree. I think so many of the problems that we face now with narrative is two party politics in the U.S. You lead global narratives, you know. Us in the UK and the rest of Europe, we kind of just like, yeah, America thinks that, so we'll be that. Yeah. But the two-party political system you've got at the moment is so divided that every single thing is politicized. Like $8 subscription fee to Twitter has been politicized. You know, you're either AOC and you think it's, you know, it's bullshit or you're you're Ted Cruz and you think that this is great. Like it's too, it's just unbelievable. And I, I I think that's one of the biggest problems we face in the world right now. I agree. Is this? And our previous two conversations were about the fourth turning, and that's yeah. that's actually the one of the primary thesis um, that I was describing there, which is that humans instinctively know something's wrong in the world. We can't trust our institutions. Um, we're getting squeezed economically, climate politics, whatever you want to look at, it looks bad. Yeah. And so our instinct is to collectivize and say. Things are bad, we have to come up with a solution and the costs are gonna be high and we have to act now. So you're either with us or you're against us. All right, quick so tangent. It, just, it explodes tribalism to a whole, whole new scale. So quick tangent, where are we in the fourth turning? We still in here? Yeah, yeah, we're still midway through the fourth turning and each of the four different periods in a full cycle is about 20 to 25 years. And so I'd say somewhere around 2030, is roughly when I would expect humanity to emerge out of this fourth turning. Bitcoin, it might be the hope that breaks the fourth turning. I do believe that because it, it allows individuals to save themselves. Yeah. And that scales all the way up through society. If you're in a country and your currency is failing and there's capital controls and you can't get a bank account, you know, there's no way to save yourself, get a mobile phone, peer-to-peer, -peer, buy some Bitcoin. At least you can save yourself. Uh, maybe a company can, maybe a family can, maybe a couple nations will adopt this and save themselves. And everyone who does quote unquote save themselves is no longer desperate. They're no longer willing to go to war or at least the incentives reduce. I've, uh, I've changed a bit of my narrative with new people asking about Bitcoin now. I'm, I'm always now, forget about price. Just forget about it. Stop thinking that if this is an investment, you're going to fuck it up. You, you, unless you get lucky, you're going to buy it and panic and sell, or you're going to panic buy and you're just going to make a mess of this. Think of it as a revolution, and then think of of your donation towards that revolution. Whether it's a hundred pound, a thousand pound, just make that donation. 
park it to one side and then start learning about Bitcoin. And then once you start learning about it, you will naturally buy more, but you're buying it to be part of the revolution. And the more people who become part of the revolution, the more people buy it, the quicker the revolution will happen. That's my, I've completely changed my explanation on it. Mm. I don't want people thinking of Bitcoin as an investment now. I know it is. I'm so beyond that now. It's like, forget that. Stop thinking that. Get away from that. This is about fixing a lot of the problems we have in the world. Um, and, you know, we all get there. You know, we come for the price gains, stay, stay for the revolution. I kind of want people to skip that bit and go straight to the revolution. I think it's I know <laughs> a naive take, to yeah, be honest. I know. <laughs> I align with the, the political mission here tremendously, and I think most people who are in the bear market are around do. But I think hijacking number go up is way more effective, but it does have a lot more potential for abuse or they come in, they get by the top, get burned, and then they hate you for recommending a bad investment. Um, I, I think the right approach is still the investment because I don't think most people want to be political revolutionaries. Those folks are already here. I think we need normie narratives like maybe don't just buy stocks, maybe buy a little Bitcoin too. I think that's actually the approach. But thanks, Brandon. Just destroy my whole new narrative. I'm sorry. I w use you know try it. Prove me wrong. I would love to be wrong about this. I just don't think I am. <laughs> my approach. My, my approach is: if you're going to buy this asset, you cannot do anything for five years. You're not going to text me in one year scared because it's probably going to go down. This is a five to ten year thing, and if you're willing to park some some money there for that time period, you're ready to buy Bitcoin. If you're not able to wait five years, you shouldn't buy any today. Well, I think we've all we all understand that kind of like four year cycle, but add a year just for, just in case. Uh, but I tell you where it came from is that um, with the football club, I get mm -hmm. uh, I'm at high risk of being accused of encouraging uh, people to invest in something. So I wrote an article on the website. It's called "Why You Should Not Buy Bitcoin," mm -hmm. and explained to them that. Don't buy Bitcoin, learn about Bitcoin. That's all it was about. Spend, just go and learn about it. Don't, I'm, I'm not advocating buying it, just go and learn about it. Smart. And actually, it was quite effective. Yeah, and that, I think that also takes the pressure off a new person. Yeah. And you pitch it as, hey, this is a new thing like the internet. Um, it's going to be a big deal, I believe. And if you care about yourself in the future, maybe you should learn a little bit about it. All right. Well, listen, look, if we've got some new people listening, because I'm going to send this out to some of my friends, um, let's deal with what misunderstand how people misunderstand energy definitely i mean there's so many of these it's almost like irritating even to bring them up um let's see the first one is that people believe that energy is globally fungible and what i mean by that is you can instantly transport energy anywhere and so that's not true energy is in these silos in locations all around the world and so if the demand is not right next to where the energy is produced you really can't sell it, which is why prices and energy uh, vary so much, right? Like during in the Texas grid in ERCOT, um, when conditions were very strange, price price of energy was negative. They were paying people to take energy assets because um, there was you can't sell it across the world, right? In the UK, they might charge you fifty cents a kilowatt hour, where if you live in a region with hydro during wet season, it might be three cents per kilowatt hour, right? So it's not fungible, it doesn't transport well, supply and demand have to be right next to each other. Um, that's a few points together. Another one is that modern grids need to overproduce energy because we can't store it. Battery technology is too expensive and we don't even have the raw earth elements even to 
full-scale battery, even if we wanted to, which means when energy is produced, it more or less has to be consumed immediately. And so what that results in is a grid where we overproduce energy, like two to three times the energy of an average day is produced, um, and only like a third of that is consumed that day. And the reason is you have to plan for the day out of each year, which has the most demand. Maybe in Minnesota, it's very cold. That might be January 15th. Everyone's heating their homes, so high draw of energy. But in the springtime, it's 70 degrees, no heating, no AC, everything's fine. You barely use any energy. And so what that results in is an enormous supply glut of energy that has no consumer, literally nothing to do about it. So the Bitcoin miners come in, they buy all that extra energy like a sponge. And like Danny mentioned earlier, that improves the economics of the energy asset, which allows you to lower the cost of energy for all the other consumers. So it's a nice little symbiotic there. Um, what else? Another one, oh, consuming electricity doesn't necessarily produce CO2. The mainstream media gets this one wrong all the time. They try to account the carbon cost for Bitcoin mining, and they assume that um, you know energy that's electrons that are already harnessed create net new carbon when the reality is that the energy production already occurred and whether or not Bitcoin miners bought it or not didn't change the total carbon output. Um, but that's a really important point. It is an important point. And that's been missed off in this. Mm -hmm. hmm. And again, it's so hard to understand energy that I actually don't think we can expect the, norm, the average person to grapple with this stuff. And so it comes back down to a narrative war of lowest common denominator, or simple memetics. And I think the reality is people are gonna have to feel some pain before they realize that energy matters and that we cannot rely on solar panels to do this. And even if, even if we wanted to go all in on solar panels, China owns the supply chain. So what are we gonna do there? We might be in war with China within five years. We're certainly in economic war today. Taiwan is a hot button, semiconductors. Um, we can't rely on China long-term. So that's not even a real idea. Maybe we can put those plants in Mexico or something like that within the next decade, but that doesn't solve our problem. Hmm. And then the last one is just about base load versus um, supplemental load or consistent power versus variable power, right? So in order to run a modern economy, you need a, you need a base amount of power being generated so that all the machines and the hospitals and everything work. Right? You can't have a hospital cutting in and out, people die. And so baseload power comes from dense forms of energy, which is either fossil fuels or nuclear um, or hydro during rainy season as well. And so those are mandatory. We have to pick one, likely the answer is all three in various locations. And then things like wind and solar, it's sun, the sun's on, sun's off. It's windy, it's not windy. Those are just supplemental forms of power. Um, they cannot replace the baseload. And so that, I think that just needs to be in context. Another one that I, I just thought of here is that fossil fuels are used for things that we probably will never electrify. So we take um, fertilizers out of natural gas, the haberdash uh, process or something like that. Um, we have to use diesel powered machines in our agriculture in order to work the land, right? Transportation with trucks, maybe we'll do electric, but probably not. So there's these certain things that we can't get away from. Plastics, all made from <laughs> fossil fuels, right? And so it's a lot bigger of an issue than simply electrifying the grid. Um, yeah, that's what's top of mind for misconceptions. When you think about 
a movement away from fossil fuels. Um, I think um, anyone's gone down the rabbit hole with this has realized like the and this this was Epstein's point. He said he he's not he doesn't want to debate people on whether climate change is happening. He agrees it's happening. His issue is the rapid removal of fossil fuels and the risks that come with that. Correct. And, and I think he, I think he's absolutely right with that. At the same time, I still have that blind spot. You know, if we go to, I mean, we've 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 gone up one degree in 120 years. Is that correct? I think that's what Nate said yeah. yesterday. But the speed of temperature changes is, is is increasing, and it looks like we might hit that 1.5 degree point within the next 30 years. And there are models that say everything up to you know 2.5, 5, and 8 degrees. And there are going to be effects of that. Ideally, we wouldn't. You know, hit an eight degrees average temperature rise on the planet. Ideally, we we would you know stay pretty constant. So at some point, we do do need to transition away as best possible from fossil fuels, but not entirely. When you're considering this, how do you think we transition away? When you've been down this rabbit hole, is it basically nuclear? Yes. Yeah. It's so extremely obvious that nuclear has to be the the biggest growth vector if we're going to replace fossil fuels. Um, I think not being scared of natural gas is the right move also for the next few decades. Natural gas is like 40 or 50% as bad as coal. So a huge improvement. And if you look at emission reduction in the last decade or two, it's mostly because we shifted to natural gas and we should lean into natural gas. It's a good form of energy. Um, but yeah, long-term it's nuclear. China's investing massively in this. Um, if we get to the end of the essay, I start to extrapolate on what happens if these incentives play out over decades. And one of those is I think small modular nuclear reactors will be all over the place where, I'll just give a little teaser, Bitcoiners could buy uh, Texas, let's say, and they could just drop a nuclear plant there in the middle of nowhere, generate power. So the whole city gets cheap or free power and mine Bitcoin with the rest. And then you can just build this sort of off-grid ecosystem with that hub of nuclear energy with no dependencies from outside that area, right? And so I think nuclear is obviously the move. And I think the newest technology of making them small is gonna be important to that. Um, I don't think it's in any sort of production mode, but the gen four SMRs are good for like 150,000 people, which is a tiny, tiny reactor compared Bedford. to what we have. We're speaking to a guy about that in January. He, yeah. He's working on that. Basically Bedford's 174,000 people. There you go. We could put one at the football club. We can mine Bitcoin. Um, some people talk about the climate hysterics, mm -hmm. and I think they have a valid point. I'm somebody who's concerned about the climate, but I don't feel the need to glue myself to a Van Gogh or spray shirt or you know, uh, climb above a tower so the motorway has to close, all these tactics that we're seeing. I, I believe these people, their heart's in the right place. I agree. But I don't think they understand uh, what's really happening here. I kind of think of them a little bit like shitcoiners. Um, it's very difficult to convince a shitcoiner why Bitcoin is king and you should stop wasting all your time with these shitcoins, put your money into Bitcoin. I find it's almost a similar discussion with these people who are you know, uh, Extinction Rebellion kind of people. Mm -hmm. How would you approach explaining this to these people? How do we switch the narrative for these people? Yeah, and I think you're spot on. Their heart's in the right place, just totally misguided. And I think the shitcoiner thing is a good analogy. Um, I think the, the way to win this argument is not to quibble over energy production and types of energy. It's to, to look at Bitcoin as a different 
uh, social technology to run our species. So money is sort of at the base of how we are, how all our incentives are structured, right? And ecology is about incentives, small change, big outcome. So with a fiat money system, uh, a politically captured money system with never ending inflation, what that's doing is it's incentivizing spending, it's incentivizing consumption. And that leads to a lot of poor ideas that are funded and a lot of waste. And so you can think of it like we're just foot on the gas pedal at all time going in random directions and we have no idea where we're going. And the output is um, a incredibly globally connected world, all this cheap plastic crap, consumption, ruling society. Um, and that's really bad for the environment. If you wanna fix that, you shift to a deflationary money, right? Jeff Booth explained this yep. well. A deflationary money prevents poor investments because the cost of being wrong when you invest is so high that people make more strategic decisions. And that tiny little shift would, would decrease more emissions than any amount of <laughs> gluing yourself to paintings or uh, honestly, anything that we're talking about energy right now, I think the number one thing would just be to shift to a deflationary money. Um, our base, our, our average energy consumption, our average environmental impact would go down tremendously. This show is brought to you by Gemini, who I am using exclusively for buying and selling Bitcoin. But whilst we're at the bottom of a bear market, I'm only buying. We're hodlers, right? We hodl through this. Now, I have been using the Gemini app for buying the dips all through this, and I've also set up my DCA with twice monthly buys of Bitcoin. Both the app and the website make buying and selling Bitcoin super easy. And Gemini have invested in building leading industry security since day one. Gemini are also running a special offer for listeners of what Bitcoin did. All you need to do is head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD and new customers will get $20 in Bitcoin when they trade over $100 or more on Gemini. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to Gemini.com forward slash WBD. That is G-E-M-I-N-I.com forward slash WBD. Next up, we have BCB Group. Now, BCB Group provide online business banking services for companies in the Bitcoin industry. And yes, I am now a customer of BCB too. Now, they heard about the difficulty I had with finding a payment services provider that understands Bitcoin, and they reached out to me. Now, BCB's clients include major exchanges, market makers, funds, and miners active in the UK and Europe, and they are expanding globally. They also have this amazing network called Blink, which facilitates instant free payments between BCB clients for all supported currencies. Now listen, I know some of you have had trouble with this too. So if you're looking for a banking provider who understands and supports Bitcoin companies rather than creating hurdles, then like me, you might want to become a BCB customer too. Now if you want to find out more, please head over to bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter, which is bcbgroup.com forward slash Peter. Also, today we have my new sponsor, Wasabi, who I will now be using to make sure I keep my Bitcoin private. With the release of Wasabi 2.0, privacy is now effortless as a wallet has introduced privacy by default. Now, rather than having to choose to coin join, this can be done automatically, so you just have to receive your Bitcoin, wait for the coin join, and then you can spend freely. All the magic happens automatically in the background, which is a massive UX improvement which you know, that's always something I care about. Now, you do get additional privacy through Tor integration into Wasabi so you don't leak your IP address. There is also no more minimum denomination, so you can coin join any amount and there is no change, so any amount you receive from a coin join is private. 
Now, privacy is something I am definitely taking more seriously, and with the recently released Wasabi 2.0, this becomes so much easier. Now, if you do want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Are there any uh, blind spots with deflationary money? It's a good question. I think it's really hard to think about this question because we've all grown up in inflationary money. It's the water we swim in. We don't mm-hmm. know we're wet, that idea. My, I had this conversation actually this week. And the, the one concern I have is that if the money supply cannot expand, that prevents government from reallocating capital um, to those who are in need. Right? And theoretically, it makes sense for a central party to help out the, the people who need it in our society because we don't want to live next to uh, tragic human suffering. Right? Status cuck you. Right, theoretically. Um, <laughs> but what we're seeing now is it's a really inefficient way to allocate capital. Um, so there's a lot of waste. But let's just say for argument's sake, it's a net positive because we reduce some human suffering in yep. the short term. Um, in but, a deflation- but hold on, there's another reason. Not, there's not just the moral reason to reduce human suffering. There is the um, there is the net benefit to society of not having the haves and the haves-nots and not having the, um, uh, the violence that comes with uh, a, a massive wealth divide. You know, if, if people cannot, you know, like in the UK at the moment, if people cannot feed their family or heat their homes, they might result, they might, there might be protests, it might result to crime. We don't know the impacts. Correct. You know, there is you know, there is a solid argument that the redistribution of income will lead to a safer society. Now, I know some people are going to listen and going to be fucking hammering their keyboard writing to me, but you, know, you see this in high-tax places like in Nordic countries. You know, they are relatively safe countries to live in. Yes, they have high tax. Yes, it's, it's not socialist, but it's not far off. But there is a solid argument or debate to have around it. Yeah, and I agree. I, I don't know if we can directly show causation mm-hmm. that high taxes equal those positive outcomes. I think generally that that logic is sound, um, but I think it's a lot more complicated than that. Um, but, but the countries that don't have social safety nets, the ones I've traveled to, have dangerous ghettos. Yeah, I mean, we have them in the United States as well. Yeah. But I think your point by and large stands, right? I will... I will concede that point. Um, short term, it helps. But the long-term consequences of having a money that's politically captured result in a situation where the, the people who have power and influence, they can decide, do I want to produce in the free market? Hard. Real consequences. Or do I want to suck up to the, uh, the monetary system and try to capture the money printer? And what I think we're doing with political money is the incentive is too great to capture the money supply. And so productive people go there rather, so it's all politics rather than producing. And I think what that produces in the long term is we break our money all the time. And I I would argue that 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 big break that occurs every 50 to 100 years when we replace the money system, I think that does more damage than the short-term pain of not feeding people on the side of the street. That's fair. Right. And so with the deflationary money, we take that power away from the state. And then what we need to see is humans giving a shit about their local environment and producing uh, maybe through charity, maybe through other types of endeavors, actually helping people redistribute wealth voluntarily. Simultaneously, another important point here is that deflationary money, what that does is all the benefits of technology, which is doing more for less, what that does is it decreases prices because we get better at things. 
And in a deflationary world, um, the people, the have-nots, their their cost of living goes down every yes. year. This rather is what than Stefan, going up. That's a really important point. So this is uh, sorry, Stefan Nevera raised to me, and I want to I want to go and look into this because I said to him, "Oh, yeah, Bitcoin will reduce the wealth divide." He said, "No, it won't. It'll probably increase the wealth Correct. divide, but well, it will raise up everyone yes. from the bottom." Exactly right. Yeah, it doesn't matter that the CEO makes five hundred times more than the janitor. Yeah, that is poor logic from a sophomore philosophy student who's captured by Marxism and doesn't realize his ideas are bad. Um, the reality is we want the largest wealth divide imaginable, which sounds bad, but why is that? That's because we allow people to take risk and innovate and produce things. And if they're right, there's an enormous reward for them, which they deserve, okay? Their, their innovations spill over and they raise up the bottom. Everyone gets cheaper goods. Everyone gets cheaper energy. Right, this is really important. What we need to be comfortable with is what is the minimum that a person's life is like? And are we morally okay with the, the least among us life? Do they have food, medicine, um, basic education? Can they raise a family, right? Whatever we agree, that's what we wanna see. And I think a, a more market-based world with the deflationary money is how we achieve that. When I was with Dominic Frisbee making this film, he said to me, that inflation is the biggest fraud enacted on the population. And he was showing me price changes, but he said, the truth is 40 years ago, 50 years ago, there would be one wage in the house and that would support a family. We're now at a stage where we've got two wages, generally in a lot of houses, and people can't even afford to have children. Correct. And he said, we, how has this happened when we've become a richer society? How, how has this happened? That's a complicated one. Um, I think that the shortest answer is America decided to leave the gold standard entirely. And the net result of that is that America exported um, dollars and we imported goods. We exported labor and we imported goods, right? So it hollowed out our working class in America in exchange for a larger supply of financialization. And so the Wall Street types, the big banks, the big tech, um, the industrialists at the top they, they skimmed a larger percentage of America's GDP, and there's just literally not uh, enough jobs for laborers. Um, and at the same time, the money's being devalued every year, and most people aren't getting raises to keep up with that. Again, it's, it's a consequence of a political money, and a political money is proof of stake, right? If we want to talk about work for a second, proof of work, um, what Satoshi did was he created a monetary system that cannot be captured. The only way to change history is to do the work and doing the work's expensive so people don't try to cheat. And it redirects allocation of productive people's resources to producing things that we all need in the market. Why does shitcoiners not get this? I've been thinking about Vitalik a lot. I think he's the sole reason, or he's the, the primary reason that uh, Ethereum people like proof of stake, and that's the only other shitcoin that's even has cultural energy at this point. And I actually think that Vitalik uh, misunderstood proof of work early on, which most people did. And in 2016, he made up his mind on proof of stake. And since then, he he can't change his mind. He already dug his heels in. So he, he has no incentive to learn if he was right or wrong about proof of work because he built a movement around proof of stake. And so I genuinely think he misunderstands it. And I also think that it's really easy to misunderstand proof of work. I think it's the hardest part to understand. And it's also the most crucial. 
Um, I tweet all the time flagrant things like if, if you don't understand proof of work, you don't understand anything about the whole industry. Your opinion is null. And I actually do believe that. Um, Satoshi's genius is a lot more subtle than people think. It's not moving money around. It's not smart contracts. It's not any of that stuff. It's literally just creating a monetary system that can't be captured. It's creating a ledger of historic transactions that require energy to change, which simply makes it hard to change history. So then you don't waste time trying to capture that thing anymore. Do you ever think Satoshi got lucky on some things and because he's not around to answer it, we, we give him, we attribute it to uh, total genius? I think it's a great question. Um, and I think the answer is probably yes. I think he got most things right. There are examples where he screwed up, like one CPU, one vote, right? Yeah. He made mistakes. But I think it's way more powerful if the idea of Satoshi is this messianic figure who gave, you know, he, he's, it's like, a, what's his name? Prometheus. Yes. Right? Prometheus stole fire from the gods, gave it to man, uh, gave man a, a huge leg up, and the gods punished him forever, right? The bird chained to the rock, the bird ate the liver every day forever. And Satoshi is like Prometheus in a sense that he stole money out of the central powers and gave it back to the people in the market. And you know, Satoshi is not getting punished forever because uh, Satoshi had good OPSEC. So he learned from Prometheus a bit. So if you're right, which I think you are, there is, some, there, there is something we need to happen. We, we need Bitcoin to be used as a currency and we will need Bitcoin to be used to, for settlement because as the block reward trends down, mm -hmm. we require economic activity to be able to support the miners. Agreed. Um, how do we do that? Because there is a HODL narrative. Mm -hmm. I like to spend Bitcoin, by the way, but there is a HODL narrative. Is it important for us to push that? And and I'm, I'm going to say, I know this is, I'm a heathen for even raising this, but do you think there will be a time we might have to discuss an inflation rate, which I know is antithetical to Bitcoin? Yeah. But... I think it's a question that we should have, and I think we should be more comfortable having this conversation in public rather than the group think where if you, even if you ask the question on Twitter, you get attacked. That's silly. Yeah, you're canceled. Um, you're done. Out of Bitcoin. Yeah, it's very, very predictable tribal behavior, but it's not very productive. Um, my belief on this is that we can't, okay, we can like try to push people to spend Bitcoin today, but if you live in a Western country, there's no incentive. It's a tax headache. Visa works great, and we expect Bitcoin to go up. Those are pretty powerful forces preventing spending in the West. In developing countries, you don't have a good bank. You know, you don't have good payment rails. You can't cross borders with your payments. It makes a lot more sense to use Lightning, et cetera. Um, but I don't think this is an issue because we have 10 to 25 years, let's say, before it starts to become a problem. And on that time frame. If Bitcoin's not filling up blocks simply as a savings vehicle, right? We don't even have to talk about spending. Just as a savings vehicle, if it's not filling up blocks in 20 years, then Bitcoin has failed for other reasons. Right. Um, I don't have any evidence to believe that that's happening. And the shitcoiners would say, well, look, the trend with fees is not going up fast enough. And they just plot a line 20 years in the future and they expect past performance to make a linear line. That's totally wrong. That's assuming that a turkey, you know, have you seen the chart where it goes up every day? The turkey loves his butcher more every day. And then Thanksgiving comes and the, and the chart goes straight down, the turkey dies. 
That's what the shitcoiners are doing, saying Bitcoin can't produce fees. Um, it's a complex system. And until there is actual need to use the chain more, we're not going to see fees. And mm. thank you, Satoshi, for putting in the subsidy, hopefully at the right time period, that demand catches up to that. And yeah, in 10 years, let's talk about it. I'm going to give you an interesting comparison on where you said Visa works well. Emma, do you mind uh, being part of this show just for one moment? I'll ask you a couple of questions. Just for people listening, Emma is uh, the wonderful operations person who travels with us. You're new to Bitcoin, Emma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sorry to embarrass you like this. That's all right. Um, And um, Emma ran the merch stand. What do you, when someone came to buy something, would you prefer card or Bitcoin? Bitcoin. Why? It was quicker. It just took forever to put the card payments, the details through our system. Yeah, Bitcoin was instant. If we'd have had the square reader, mm-hmm. do you think you think you still would have preferred Bitcoin? Um, probably, yeah. Because what I found was a lot of people had these had wanted to pay it with Bitcoin, but actually, not everyone knew how to use it, did they? Yeah. Pete was and Danny were teaching people how to use it to, to make the payment. So we came here and we got a square reader, and it was a week to get approved. I was like, oh shit! Well, we can't accept that. So the only way we could take a card was via our website with a discount code to get rid of the shipping, and we had to take all their details, so it would take forever. Or as Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But actually, even if we had the Zettel Reader, Bitcoin is faster. It feels faster. We didn't have one lightning payment fail. That's great. We had some, a couple of people were a bit slow when it was coming off their own node. Obviously, um, custodial wallets are faster. We're now at that point where I prefer Bitcoin payments. Also, if we take card payments, they go, Zettel collects them when we're back at our football club, Zettel collects them, and then we get a we, we don't get a settlement till the next day. Bitcoin, we've got it immediately. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a nice better. story, but I would not I would be careful to extrapolate that to the masses. You're at a Bitcoin conference where people want to spend because it's novel. And you're wanting to receive it. It is good to receive. I agree with you on that, especially if you value Bitcoin. But th- there's still enormous burdens. The people who spent that Bitcoin, they have to account for the UTXOs when they bought, when they sold, and what was the capital difference. And literally- If they can be bothered to. Yeah, you can You can uh, technically break tax laws if you choose to. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, I, I still don't okay, see Okay, I'll give it. you another example. But hold on, let's look at it. It's not happening. No, no, but, but, I'll, give right? you, but, but I'll give you another example. I, the reason I'm saying this is I think a lot of times people use Bitcoin because they just want to, because they're a Bitcoiner. They want to spend it. They want to, it's novel. They, they want to play with it, right? Yeah. Okay, when I went out to El Zonte in El Salvador last time, I used to go and get money out of the bank, and I'd have to get dollars, and I'd spend my dollars, and at the end of it, I'd have some left over. And I've probably got various little piles of dollars back in my home in the UK that don't get used. Mm-hmm. Last time I went to El Zonte, I didn't because everyone in El Zonte accepts Bitcoin. So I had no need, no need for dollars, I had no need to carry any money, and I have no need to worry about um, having dollars left at the end of it. For me, there are instances now where Bitcoin as a spender or a receiver are preferred over Visa. They're actually preferred. I totally agree. There's micro cases that make sense. Cross-borders one, developing countries without proper banking systems, another. But the one I'm thinking about is when we first got the internet, the first time I was on the internet, it took like about eight minutes to download a 
JPEG, right? It was slow. And then suddenly at my school, we got ISDN, so it was a bit quicker. And then suddenly at home, we had an ISDN. Like, it gradually grew and got better and better. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's what's happening with Bitcoin now. It is getting better. In little niches, I agree. But you're not going to get Western people to spend it day to day and do the tax accounting and pay capital gains tax when it's so easy to tap and pay. Of course, but we are seeing, I mean, we saw the bill with Gillibrand and Lummis, which wanted to allow just the minimus, yeah, and and but I then think you have gonna... a deflating currency and an inflating currency. You know, why would you spend an asset that we bought because it's going to go up versus an asset we know is going to go down? Well, maybe you're in the part of the cycle where you think it's going to go down, so you spend some. Yeah, I mean, we do see that when Bitcoin's price is high and a local top, people are more willing to spend their coin because it's a good time. Now, you want me to spend some coin? Madness. Yeah, well, now you should be buying. But what I'm saying is, like, trajectory-wise, we're heading in the right direction. But but we will need a lot more of it. I think it's going to take a very long time. I'm yeah. glad you're optimistic. I'm less optimistic. Well, I just... In I the think, short term, I'm less optimistic. I think HODL's a great narrative for new people coming in. Spending, I think, is a good narrative for people who have been around for four or five years and they've got some gains. Because not only that, not only does it support the miners, but it also supports the companies trying to build Bitcoin companies. You know, we need your IBEXs and your open nodes. If people are spending Bitcoin, that supports them as well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's, I consider it almost like my little bit of like a tax on the system is that I support it. Yeah, I think supporting it for ideological reasons is nice. And I think that Bitcoiners will do that as almost a charity or a vote, political vote with their money. But the incentives aren't there, right? Emma prefers I, it. I She's not even a Bitcoiner. It. Come on, man. <laughs> That's because you didn't have your banking rails set up, which isn't. It's a unique situation, to be fair. Well, yeah. I, I think I think Emma said she preferred it from Zettle, which she's used because it's instant. I think it's faster sometimes. Sometimes it is. Yeah, but not at scale. Should we talk about what happens when? Uh, if I'm right about this symbiosis with yes. miners and energy, look to the future a little bit. Tell me. Because I think this is where things get fun, right? We sort of we establish the fact that Bitcoin miners help produce net new energy assets. There's countless examples today. There's going to be many more in the future. And if that's true, we're going to have more energy, more widely distributed around the world, which is good for humans. So, yeah, harnessing any energy anywhere can be monetized. Existing energy assets are more economical and the cost of capital or the cost of producing new energy is decreased. Right. Those are the base incentives. So what happens in 10 years, 100 years, 1,000 years? And this was very fun for me to think about. You asked, what, you know, how do I do this thinking? This was the best part of the article, in my opinion. Um, so the first one is that Bitcoin mining is the catalyst that leads us to energy abundance, Okay, meaning pretty much zero marginal cost of energy. So all intents and purposes, our day-to-day life, energy is pretty much free. And the analogy is that similar to how when the internet's getting built out, there was uh, demand for broadband, demand for faster internet. Simply having the demand led to a supply increase, right? That's a market signal that says everybody wants this product. So shit, we better invest really quick and get this product everywhere. And I think the same is with uh, Bitcoin mining. There's now demand for energy anywhere in the world. So people are getting creative, building new ways to harness it. And at scale, that's gonna be a massive increase in energy for humans. Um, tangential point here, unrelated to the article. I have this thesis, and you know I'm not alone here, but the thesis is that in the future, 
especially as block subsidy goes down and Bitcoin growth starts to level off, what we're going to see is that miners are only profitable if they have essentially free energy. And so that might be because you capture waste heat, that might be because it's stranded, or that might be because you're helping to bootstrap a new energy asset. But the, you know, you know, buy a big facility and just harness a bunch of energy at grid prices to make money, I don't think, I think that's gonna be a temporary blip in Bitcoin's history. So it's really gonna be just a supportive ancillary service. Do you think that could lead to a drop in hash rate then? No, because there's so much negatively priced energy around the world. Right, okay. Yeah, because, yeah, energy is always gonna have a mismatch in supply and demand. It might take 10 years to build an asset, and then it might take another 10 years for demand to build up. You might overbuild some hydro in the wet season, you have too much, but in the dry season, you're good to go. It's just a, a natural byproduct of, of energy. Um, the only thing that would change that is if batteries became uh, like 10,000 times cheaper or something like that, where every, every bit of elect, uh, energy we harness, we could preserve. But that seems extremely unlikely right now, um, possible. But let's say energy is uh, essentially free going future. All of a sudden, all the things we want to build, the energy constraint is gone. And remember, energy is the master commodity of all products. So if the energy is gone or the energy cost is gone, we can do wacky stuff like take water out of the ocean and take all the salt water out and literally just throw energy at the problem and produce fresh water. So desalination of water, Correct. Uh, salt water, that is an energy. The constraint is energy. Huh. We can do it today. We have prototypes. Um, but it's, it's a negative ROI process right now. Right, okay. Um, but we increase our energy capacity, decrease the cost, we'll have those plants all over the place. Um, and fresh water is gonna be a really big issue. We've been burning through it bad. Um, I saw a map recently that showed the Southwest of the US, which I think includes, actually doesn't include LA, but let's say Arizona, Nevada, essentially all, all of that water comes from the Colorado River. So snow lands on the Rocky Mountains, melts, goes in the Colorado River, and goes all the way to Southern California. All their water is relying on that one river. Very, very vulnerable. So um, that's not a very good situation. Um, fresh water is gonna cause wars in the future. It probably already has. Um, if we can get rid of that problem, huge win for humanity. And there's a ton of things like that. Um, increased food production, space travel, um, I heard about this concept called molecular weight refineries, where you essentially just put material into a machine and that machine can then deconstruct it into the atoms or molecules that we need. Very like Star Trek-y, but again, energy is the input. We don't even pretend to build, we don't even think about building those things because the energy cost is so high. Um, Terraforming Mars? Yeah. How's that gonna happen? There's a lot of theories. I think that it's it doesn't, a, a very do, hard problem. Doesn't Musk wanna let off nuclear? That's one idea. Weapons in, in the atmosphere. Yeah, sci-fi authors have been discussing this since the beginning. Um, bl literally blow up bombs there or concentrate the sun's rays or um, there's all kinds of wacky ideas. But the reality is we evolved to live on earth and mm -hmm. everywhere else is trying to kill us. Mars, space, it's horrible. <laughs> and so if we're gonna live there comfortably, not under a bubble, we'd have to do things like that. When you talk about early adopters, leapfrogging the laggards, yep. We might be looking in, in a decade, two decades time back at El Salvador and saying Bukele was a visionary. Absolutely. He's taken a big risk, but I think we will look back on him and say that. Um, the first example is just adopting Bitcoin. 
If you own Bitcoin on your balance sheet and other people don't and the price goes up, you gained relatively your position in the world. So countries like El Salvador, nobody's heard of them. Nobody knew about Bukele before this. He buys some Bitcoin. He goes on a PR campaign. Now everybody knows him. And if the price goes up five years from now, all of a sudden El Salvador could be a, a serious country 10 years, 20 years from now. They might leapfrog those second tier countries that you know, they don't need to take the risk. And so the same is true with energy. If you have more energy, you have more wealth. So those who adopt Bitcoin mining in their own country have this flywheel of incentives that lead to more energy locally, which means cheaper goods, which means less reliance on other countries, which means better exports, higher quality of life, uh, more innovation, et cetera. And so they're just base, base shifts and fundamentals. And we shouldn't be surprised that the, the rogue states are adopting Bitcoin because they have the most to lose or the most to gain, mm. sorry. Well, but they also have advantages of using the technology right now. Well, anyone could use the technology right now, but if you're, a, if you're the leader in the US, you have everything to lose. Why would you take unnecessary risk, right? It's like the, the innovator's dilemma. If you're in a large corporation, you stop taking risks. You stop creating products that will cannibalize your business, right? It's against human nature, which is why the upstart can shoot the moon with a new idea that the, the incumbent would never see, right? Why did Polaroid screw up and miss digital cameras, right? They actually patented it first. They came up with the technology 20 years ahead of time, but they were too arrogant as an organization. Um, human nature took over and they didn't innovate. Same with Blockbuster. Exactly. I kind of think or hope that Bitcoin and now putting energy into this will become like this great leveler. So whereas we have a, a domestic wealth divide in the UK, you have it here in the US, we have a global wealth divide. Mm -hmm. I kind of hope it becomes a leveler. So back to before, we don't want, we don't want equality. No, not equality, but a bit of a leveler. We want to raise the standard of living for the lowest socioeconomic class above a, a certain point that we feel good about. And energy is 100% mandatory for that process. Well, if it could wipe out the World Bank and the IMF and all these you know, centralized institutions which you know, enforce economic slavery on these smaller nations, I think that's a good thing. Yeah, it allows developing countries to have real sustainable growth because it's funded in a, in a way that's not predatory mm. and it gives energy assets to that country. So then they can actually manufacture things instead of being reliant on expensive imports. And so, yes, I think that having sound money that's not politically captured and having lower cost incentives to produce energy at a lower cost, those are fundamental, right? If we have those, then we should be able to raise people out of poverty because food is cheaper, housing is cheaper, there's more jobs, materials are cheaper, transportation is cheaper, healthcare is cheaper, right? Those are what we need to have a standard of life that we can be proud of. All right, talk to me about this parallel society idea because this is so interesting. Yeah, so the theory stems from the idea of the great spreading out, okay? So historically, cultures have lived on rivers and lakes. And they do that because rivers are transportation, fresh water, food, they're defendable. Like right? Adelan, like we discussed earlier. Bingo, it's a strategic point. Okay, in the future, if we're right about energy, we'll be able to harness these remote energy assets anywhere in the world and mine Bitcoin in the short term. And what that will lead to is humans may leave these mega cities, which is where all the energy assets are today. They'll leave those and essentially go wherever we want. 
And the spreading out, right, we could drop a nuclear reactor in the middle of nowhere um, and build a city around that. And so humans, I believe, will slowly spread out. They'll have more land. And it's a really important thing because we only have a couple hundred countries today, right? And they don't, they're not making more land and we're not really experimenting with government structures. And so we're sort of stagnant. And I would like to see more competition between states. Um, like the best thing about the US, in my opinion, is federalism. The states yeah. compete, we try experiments, we learn from the, the wins and the losses of each state. Theoretically, we all benefit. I wanna see that on the global scale. I wanna go from 200 to 2000 to maybe 20,000 territories where the local politics reflect the, the individual's desires. And a one way we can do that is by distributing energy. And the only way to distribute energy more widely is to have a captive customer that comes with the energy asset. So it allows us to spread out. But you also have that cultural side to Bitcoin, whereby you know, you've talked to me about that project in Africa. I want to go and see it. I want to mm -hmm. see the project. But there's the project in Honduras that we spoke to somebody about. There's the one in, is in it the Indonesia. Philippines. Mm -hmm. yeah. One of the benefits of having half a million Twitter followers is I can go to any city in the world and say, I'm here. At least one person is going to come down the pub. You might get five, you might get 20. And I know even though we might be completely different people, we've got something we align on and we can hang out, we can talk, and it's great fun. Yep. And that's... That when you talked about parallel societies, I was also thinking of that in that you know these cities, you can travel from one to the other and they're going to be your people with, you know. And like you say, the politics might be different, but in terms of the general kind of direction you want things to go and the things you care about, there's going to be a lot of alignment. I agree. It, it feels in a way like Galt's Gulch in cyberspace. The yeah. productive people want to step out of a, a system that we may not agree with, that you will have nothing and be happy Right, let's, let's frame it this way. I view there's two paths this decade, and I'm simplifying a little bit. There's gonna be mega cities, which are hyper-efficient, totally surveilled. Uh, literally, you will own nothing and be happy. Um, and as we continue this, this like hollowing out of, if we continue down the fiat path, we're gonna continue to remove uh, low-level jobs. We're gonna automate them away, and there's gonna be less jobs for the bottom half of the population. What are we gonna do? We're gonna put them in mega cities with shipping container houses, free internet, you know, free porn, bread and circuses, right? Just distract them and keep them there because we can't just kill them all. So we have to consolidate them. That's one way to live. Another way to live is to be on the fringes of society, to uh, go to one of these startup cities, to, to you know, go west and colonize a new path. And I think what we're gonna see is the, the inherently productive, entrepreneurial, visionary type people are gonna feel suffocated in those mega cities and they're gonna venture out. And if you have a city with a bunch of productive people, it can be small and still have enormous productive output because we have the internet so we can work remotely. We have money that can't be stopped. We have decentralized energy, which can produce food. So we have everything we need to break apart from the matrix and create that parallel path. Now, I don't think it's gonna be quite that simple, but I think this, this line of thinking really matters because we're heading in a period where centralization is going to peak and it's going to strangle the thing that makes humans special, which is individual action, individual entrepreneurship, problem solving, et cetera. So we're gonna have these startup cities and their role in my mind is to preserve the, the spark of freedom. It's to preserve the idea that 
humans can create amazing things um, simply because they want to. It doesn't need a central planner to to steer the ship. And so, yeah, in a way, it's like preserving preserving the spark um, that we need here. You will mine Bitcoin and be happy. I love it. <laughs> All right, listen. I mean, look, we can go on for ages on this. I, I know other people are going to want to talk to you about this. I feel like I like should allow you to save some of it, but um, I do. I do specifically want to uh, finish on one bit, which is the moral Please. imperative of this. Um, and I feel that now. I, I yeah. I feel this moral imperative to support Bitcoin in the best way possible. And I've not always been the best Bitcoiner. And we, yeah, I've not always understood Bitcoin. I've not always understood why people think about Bitcoin in certain ways. Mm -hmm. But I definitely feel that moral imperative. I felt it so much after the interview with Gladstein when he talked about what the IMF and the World Bank is doing to people. I feel that moral imperative now. So, Yeah, I think right now we're seeing billions of people suffering under authoritarian regimes. And they're not really able to save themselves because they don't have a monetary system that supports them. Okay, now we have Bitcoin. You have a mobile phone, you can sock away a few Satoshis and hopefully you can protect yourself from that period, right? Um, so I think there's a few points here for why it's our moral imperative. The first one I just mentioned, which is individuals can save themselves. We have a way to, to store money outside of the system so you're not beholden to the fate of your state, okay? The next one is that what we're gonna do is we're gonna unite all of the humans on the planet under one economic language. Everyone in the world can, can now contribute to a global economy with Satoshis that no one can stop. So what does this do for the, the budding entrepreneur in Kenya who can't get funding for his startup and he can't even really sell any products because his financial rails don't leave his country, right? Now he's on a Bitcoin standard and those ideas can enter the world. He can create something amazing that we all benefit from. Right? How many Leonardo da Vinci's are buried in Kenya right now, but they can't get their idea out? How many Maya Angelos are in Timbuktu, but they just can't participate? Right? So it's our moral imperative to get those, get that human capital online, let them compete in the marketplace. A few of them will shoot the moon, create a life-changing innovation, and again, it raises up the bottom of the boat. And I think that's um, entirely lost when people are discussing Bitcoin is. Yeah, it connects us all on one specific economic language. And Zabo describes this as social scalability, right? Which is the idea that how do humans cooperate in large numbers over space and time, right? We went from small tribes and we create agricultural societies and we're contributing there. Then we go to these feudal states, industrial states. Now we're in the nation state game. Each advancement there required technologies that allow us to cooperate better, whether it's language, whether it's property rights, whether it's courts, whether it's uh, you know armies and borders, religion, all these things allow us to cooperate better. And since the Industrial Revolution, we've essentially hit a, a glass ceiling on social scalability. It's large nation states, whoever has the most army, the most power wins. So magnitude of power rules. And we're going to just fight over resources forever in this game until we can find a way to transcend that nation state, to shatter the glass ceiling of the nation state. And I think what Bitcoin does is it slowly erodes that um, large state incentive, right? Similar to the sovereign individual thesis, it erodes that game. It allows us to all connect on a uh, invisible substrate in cyberspace, sending Satoshis around. And it knows not of the borders. And that alone brings people online and allows us to cooperate more, allows us to break into 
10 or 100 times as many jurisdictions. And I think all of these are good for humans. And the final one is it, and we touched on this earlier with regards to moral imperative, is it removes the incentive to capture the money. So it produces more product. It, it shifts productive people to the market rather than capture the money. Um, you add all those up and it's very clear that it is our moral imperative to bring this on. If you care about people, give them some energy, give them some Bitcoin. Um, if you care about people, let their ideas enter the world and compete and the good ideas help everyone. Brandon, you're fucking brilliant. <laughs> you really are fucking brilliant. Um, Thank you, Peter. I, I feel like I'm, when I, every time I sit with you, I feel like I've sat with an absolute genius. Um, I feel dumb as fuck, but I have absolute, it's absolute pleasure to sit with you. This is brilliant. I've, this is just, I'm kind of lost for words. Uh, every now and again, that. I do an interview that I have to go away and think afterwards because it impacts me. And, and, and I've got like little notes in my head. And once you're gone, I'm going to be saying to Danny, thought of this. What about that? What about this? <laughs> Honestly, I think you're brilliant. And I wish you wrote more. And I look forward to your book. I look forward to everything you do. And I feel just honored that you sit and do this with me. So Appreciate thank that, you Peter. so much. Do you, where do you want to send people to? Yeah, all my writing is now being published at brandonquidham.com. I saw your nice new my website. Name. Yeah, I built it in 72 hours. It's a little shitty WordPress site. Simple, I like it. Otherwise, Twitter is the primary spot. Ideas go out there, links to the website there. Bquidham is the handle. Um, come say hello there. And lastly, um, we just wrapped up the Pacific Bitcoin Conference. Yes. Tickets are on sale right now, pacificbitcoin2023.com. We're releasing a limited amount of super early birds. They'll probably be gone by the time this airs. But if you can get the early bird tickets, we're running it back next year. Um, I work for Swan, swan.com slash quitum. Create an account with Swan. We'll give you 10 bucks in Bitcoin for free. Um, that's all I need to show. Mate, you're brilliant. Keep doing this. Um, this is an absolute pleasure. Um, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Okay, what'd you make of that? You love that one, right? Everybody loves Brandon. If you haven't actually listened to my other shows with Brandon, please do go and check them out. Check out The Fourth Turning. It's a book he recommended to me. It's a great read. And go and check out the shows we made to discuss that. Um, this also incredible. Please do go to the show notes. Bitcoin is a pioneer species. It's just a fantastic piece of writing from Brandon. I do hope he gets a book out at some point because I know he's got a book in him. And as you probably heard in the interview, I did bounce some ideas off him and he immediately smashed them. Smashed them back. No Pete. I don't agree. And this is why you're wrong. He's a quick thinker and a great thinker, and I do love having him on the show. He'll be back on the show loads of times in the future. Right, if you've got any questions about this or anything else, please do reach out to me. You can drop me an email. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. It's me who reads them. It isn't Danny, even though some of you address them to me and Danny. It's me who reads them, and I do reply. But if you've got stuff for Danny, I will fire it onto him. All right, we've got a big weekend of football ahead. England are going to absolutely destroy France. Mbappe is going to get a chance. It's going to be England's World Cup this year. Of course it is. All right. Also, Bedford have got a game. We're playing Wellingborough away. This is our 19th game in the league. It's the halfway point. If we win this, it'll be 19 played, 18-1, and one defeat. By the way, that defeat really pissed me off. But still, that'll be 54 points. What a great half of the season. Okay. As I said, you got any questions, you can reach out to me. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Apart from that, have a great weekend, and I will see you all next week.